Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. A podcast about history. We're gonna solve a mystery. I feel kind you of didn't, you didn't moist run and this. misty. You didn't run this by me, okay? So I don't know what's going on. <laughs> it's Wizard and the Bruce. Da, 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 da. <laughs> er. Wizard Bruce. Er. Holden and Jake. <laughs> don't accept fakes. They are your dudes. Er. Uh, welcome, everybody. It is I, your sexy, witchy wizard, Holden McNeely. And it is I, your fat child. Just your, that's that's it. He's just a fat child. <laughs> the other one's like a gothic legend, but the, bro- but the brother, he's just, it's it's gothic legend girl and also the fat one. Right out of the gate, just Bruiser. bringing up a really good, uh, uh, oh, um, really good point. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Pugsley, really, what is, but you know, you kind of always watch, I mean, he's just kind of a delinquent. I loved in Family Values, um, they're like talking about how everyone here got in uh, through pre- the ca- into the camp via being <laughs> prestigious. He's like, what about your boy? And he's just like, probation or whatever. Oh. So funny. There, oh, God. So many great lines. Uh, Yeah, let's get the gush right into it because I had such a fun nostalgia trip uh, over the past couple days because I loved the movies. I remember when they came out. I saw the uh, films in the theater with my father, my dad and I. That was one of those movies. My dad and I's whole relationship centered around like watching movies together, essentially, <laughs> and TV shows and stuff. And that was one of those movies where like the sense of humor just hit us both perfectly. Like We just laughed so hard at every little gag and there are so many gags in that in those movies and I just absolutely love them I would watch them anytime they were on uh, TV but I definitely saw them both in the theater and I even remember going into Adam's Family Values being like there's no way this is going to be good because I mean especially in the 90s at that time every one of these comedies got like a terrible sequel well because of this yeah it really did spark the way everything from like uh Get Smart mm-hmm. to um, Beverly Hillbillies, like every sitcom. One of the movies got that, a movie. Yeah, after this. Brady Bunch actually did a really good job of it too, and they played the same fiddle Adam's Family did, mm-hmm. uh, where it was about how much they stood out and how weird they were in comparison to all the quote unquote normal people around them, and that is what really is what made me love those movies. Is I feel like always growing up, I felt like the weird kid the the other kid and I went I, I lived that private school life right 
uh, I, and I was surrounded by a lot of the kids uh, that I, you know, that uh, in Adam's family values when they're at the summer camp, a lot of those kids, you know, in the little collared shirts and the khaki shorts. Unfortunately, I couldn't dress like a Pugsley or Wednesday. I kind of had to follow suit a little bit in terms of that stuff, in terms of dress code. But um, I, di- I didn't feel comfortable necessarily in those clothes. And I remember just, just feeling so just weird and out there with just the thoughts running through my brain and just the kind of stuff I was trying to do, this little performer kid, comedy kid, you know. And watching these movies, I was weirdly jealous of this family because I was always made to feel so weird and I feel like, you know, I don't want to, like, throw my parents under the bus or anything. But, you know, they they like to uphold social norms like most fucking people do. It's it's understandable, you know, unless you come to, like, New York or something like that. You know, in the, in, in small towns or big or, or conservative towns, I mean, you're trying not to stick out as much as humanly possible. I feel like a lot of people are trying not to stick out as much as possible, really. And 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 so I remember just really wanting to rebel against that vibe of like going to a like a, a house party with all the different families and stuff, and feeling like you had to kind of uphold this certain uh, normalcy, I'll call it. Um, and watching the movies was like, oh my god. It's actually awesome to be so strange and so different. And yeah, they're going to roll their eyes at you or they're going to give you weird looks. But like like these this family doesn't give a fuck. They don't even it's not even that they're like I mean that was originally the title of the origin of the sitcom from the 1960s. The Don't Give a Fuck Family. This family doesn't give a fuck. It is it and it, But then because of censorship. Cuz it's not even like they're doing it like to rebel like maybe some goth kid or something. You know what I mean? Or like like in your in your teens or whatever, right? Or or they they just don't they're just in their world and they're just so confidently in their world. That that's just that is the weird is normal and seeing that and relishing in that and celebrating that is what was so important to me and it's weird that this silly comedy about super a super morbid family could actually have this profound meaning to me but especially upon rewatching these movies and by the and also laughing out loud I think people forget if you haven't seen these movies in a while just how many jokes per second and visual gags per second exist. <laughs> in these movies it is just bang bang i mean sonnenfeld just crushes it uh but but i still laugh i burst out laughing watching adam's family values with joan cusack meets gomez and she's like oh aren't you the lady killer and so confidently fucking raul julia just looks back and just goes acquitted (laughs) (laughs) all those little there's so many of those lines uh in uh, in there i should have looked up a bunch of one-liners to like rattle them off because they just come so rapidly so constantly and how much they love uh, when he's like he's he's talking about fester he's like i would have uh gomez is like i would have crawled in my belly through hot coals and broken glass if you wanted me to and she's like why wait (laughs) um just so many good lines and i was laughing out loud like multiple times watching this and that's hard to do especially for a movie i've seen several times before what the adams family does best and i feel like it's almost so good that you basically except for i don't know maybe like tim burton movies which uh the adams family movies wouldn't actually wouldn't have really been greenlit if it wasn't for tim burton Ad- kind of bringing back this so you Ad- have fond memories yeah. you're like remembering a time and place and what the adams family meant to you i'm shocked at like seeing all the pieces fit together of how like how did we end up with gothic vaudeville, which yeah. is what the Adams family is? It's more uh, it's morbid, fucking death obsessed, creaking decay, yada da 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 wah 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 comedy, which is such a brilliant and refreshing aesthetic yeah. that 
you might as like you can't even do without just doing the Adams family. Yes, and I love that you brought up Tim Burton because the Adams Family, of course, the best Tim Burton movie that Tim Burton never made. <laughs> it is oozing with Tim Burton's style. Like we wouldn't have that movie, I think, especially the look of it mm-hmm. and the tone of it uh, without Burton. But you're right; I didn't even think about that vaudeville, vaudeville oh, element well, of it. But so that's what makes it fly, right? That's what allows them to throw a baby off of a fucking roof of a mansion, among many other disturbing things, or bury a. a cat alive which happens in the first moments of values it's so funny it really was the my first exposure to dark comedy like mm-hmm. literally pitch black like just acknowledgement of sex and death and violence and like all kind of wrapped in because of the like kitschy 1960s nostalgia my parents took me to these movies and i was like seven or eight years old and i didn't understand any of the, like the sex jokes i didn't understand like any of the uh, social commentary, I was just like, oh, it's funny. That baby has a mustache or like, oh, uh, Fester, that's the doctor from Back to the Future. And now he's got a light bulb in his mouth. That's great. <laughs> and of course, obviously, I was a huge fan of the pinball table. Let's, sure, let us yeah, not forget. I, mean, I was definitely going to bring up the pinball table. It's one of the best of all time made by Midway. Uh, phenomenal. Um, and and the the other, uh, I mean, the whole franchise of it, by the end, my eyes were glazing over because I'm like, how many other, what else did they do? A comic book? Of course they got a comic book. How Books? A musical? I can't talk about this anymore. I can't think about the Adam's Family anymore, but uh, we'll, we'll go over these, these things for sure. And of course, we're only mentioning this creepy, kooky, mysterious, spooky, ooky family because it's spooky October. <laughs> yes, spooky October. Uh, if you're listening to this at the time this is coming out, we just did Scream. We plan to do uh, Silent Hill, I believe, um, coming up, and a fourth mystery box entry. Oh, what's in the box? <laughs> what's in the box? Uh, so, yeah, so, and, and then there's also, we're talking about these movies that came out, because that was our nostalgia for Adam's Family. Did you remember the TV show that much? And I definitely, I, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say embarrassingly, I had no idea they were based off, this whole franchise was based off of New Yorker comics. So I uh, understood that they were based off of New Yorker comics just as like a cartoonist nerd, like growing up. But I talked to so many boomers. Like I talked to my parents, I talked to my uncles, I talked to just any boomer that I could talk to. And none of... If you look up research about this, uh, about the making of the movies and all and all that, they will claim up and down that it was like, oh, no, it was uh, the cartoons. We were big fans of the cartoons. That's why we, uh, you know, decided to make this movie. I just remember being a seven year old child opening up the New Yorker in 1938. Like (laughs) lies, clearly lies. The whole thing exists because of the TV show. Yeah. More specifically because of that goddamn theme song. But we'll get into that later. But. Yes, technically they were a series of New Yorker cartoons. And again, the New Yorker, as is now, is a foofy magazine for the highly educated, mostly rich. It was not like, you know, it's it wasn't like Garfield or the Family Circus. People didn't go gaga for Charles Adams' unnamed family mania. Yes, because these characters did not get names until the TV yeah. show. We'll get into it. But the cartoons are delightful, and they do have like a very... I keep wanting to say morbid, but they do have that dark sensibility. And a celebration of that dark sense and a celebration of the weird. And they definitely have that theme that runs through the whole everything where you have these very, quote unquote, normal aristocratic or whatever families with big wide eyes because they're surrounded by this bizarre Mm -hmm. gothic 
strange family that are doing always strange things, right? Right. So, yeah, let's fucking hop into it, Jake. Let's take a walk down edutainment lane. Mm. <laughs> oh, it's scary. I don't like it. Dismembery lane. <laughs> oh, no. um, and uh, here we go. Uh, of course, the Adams family, a wealthy and aristocratic family that loves only the macabre to the horror of those normal families around them. And where did they come from? They came from a man who actually, because uh, Adams is A D D A M S, the last name. It came from a man named Charles Adams with the same spelling for a last name, who was born in West Westfield, New Jersey. He was known as something of a rascal around the neighborhood, but he also would say that you know he was one of those rare individuals that actually had a happy childhood. He was, however, very fearful as a child and incredibly claustrophobic. He was especially scared of snakes. Shout out to my wife, Lexi, who also has an insane fear of snakes. How much, how scared of snakes do you have to be before it's an insane fear? Because I feel like I have a relatively normal fear of snakes, and it is a lot. She can't see a snake on TV, and if a rubber snake is even in the room, she freaks out. That's insanely scary. Right. It's a lot. It's a lot. If a drawing of a snake will upset her. (laughs) Can um, she read words with the letter S in it? Yeah, yes, <laughs> okay. she could do that. All right, she's fine. <laughs> uh, but what was cool with, with him was to cope with this terror, this fear, he would actually just draw snakes all, all day. Just snake after snake after snake to just desensitize himself to oh, these horrible fears. Oh, that makes a lot of fears, sense because right? as a kid, I was scared of talking to girls, and I filled my notebooks <laughs> with just giant naked ladies with right. huge gazangas. Yes, that was uh, the, A to A, mm-hmm. the similarity. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's distantly related to U.S. Presidents John Adams and John Quincy Adams. Just a little trivia for you in case Ooh. you're going to a trivia night tonight. <laughs> it's not just Simpsons trivia. It's like a bunch of different stuff. And he... Uh, he loved these three different homes and buildings in his childhood. There was a house on, I love this, Elm Street that he was really into. There was an old gothic rundown house. Another on Dudley Avenue where he was uh, caught by police trespassing inside of it. These like dilapidated Victorian mansion homes. And there was College Hall, the oldest building on University of Pennsylvania campus. And all three are said to have influenced the Adams family mansion. He drew a lot in these young years. And he was very encouraged by his father, who wanted to be an architect, but ended up a piano company exec. He did cartoons for his high school literary magazine. And he was definitely, I think, of the mind that he wanted to follow his passions and, um, uh, where did I, I read somewhere that it takes three generations to make for like a successful artist. You have to have the one generation that like the immigration generation, the second generation is rising out of poverty. The third generation can actually, because they have, they have enough like family money behind them can like become the true artist. And it sounds like very similar to here. Oh yeah, (laughs) mama. Uh, my dad wanted to be a writer. Um, so they went to he went to Colgate University for a couple of years, then went to the University of Pennsylvania, where he would later have a fine arts building named after him with a sculpture of the Adams family out front. Then he studied at Grand Central School of Art in New York City, which was actually in Grand Central Station, like in the top of it or whatever. Weird. Isn't that cool? Yeah, his first gig was, get this, of course, perfect for, for this guy. 
He was uh, the in the layout department of True Detective Magazine, which was actually a true crime magazine published from 1924 to 1995. It actually started out as a fiction magazine with a couple of real crime articles tossed in there, but those ended up being so popular that it just totally took over the magazine. And what he had to do was he had to edit out these photos of corpses to remove blood and stuff and stuff like that. And some of the gorier stuff. And he was said to, uh, in, in uh, reference to this gig, he said, a lot of those corpses were more interesting the way they were. So he's definitely an interesting, uh, yes, the word is morbid, but has a sense of humor about it type of guy. He ends up getting uh, finally a drawing into the New Yorker of a window washer in 1932 for just $7.50. And that's what starts his freelance career and his relationship with the New Yorker. And that's how he got going with the comic strip. So the comic strip doesn't happen until five years later. So he's doing freelance gigs uh, all over the place and he does. He says he doesn't know where the inspiration came from. He says he just started mm. drawing these characters, Morticia and Lurch, and adding more and more. Morticia was definitely the first character to kind of like appear, but the kind of Victorian manner set, basically the spooky woman in a long black dress in a Victorian setting with a weird like, uh, originally Lurch wasn't like a full Frankenstein. He yeah. was like this hairy like palooka of a man, huh. but- you mentioned all those spooky houses that inspired Did they frighten you to your very core, Jake? I mean, a little bit. <laughs> but you have to understand the context of America, especially when Charles Adams was growing up. Because when you think about it, uh, Scooby-Doo, uh, Haunted House movies, uh, The Adams Family, even like, uh, you know, all these things. What do they have in common? The Victorian house. Yes. And what it was is basically growing up in New Jersey... It was littered with all these skeletons of these opulent, lopsided, decrepit mansions that were left over from the Gilded Age, where, you know, kind of a Great Gatsby style, the height of home building was to emulate Europe in the most, like, dumb, weird, like, misinformed American way. So you had these, like, giant towers attached to these various, like, lopsided uh, rooms, so you needed a parlor and a drawing room and a powder room and, like, a bathing area and a greenhouse and all these things that like you know the nouveau riche just like gobbled up because they wanted to seem sophisticated and then once the stock market crashed all the actual rich people moved to like neater houses that you know kind of didn't uh you know that were more of the style you know frank lloyd wright came along and all of a sudden the victorian house was like gross and bad and modernism was in Mm -hmm. and the people that got went broke just abandoned them so Imagine, like, in the future, once the water wars kick in, there's just going to be, like, all these weird spooky McMansions dotting the countryside, like, with their eight-car garages and dumb columns and, like, shitty, like, dead uh, lawns in front of them. And I'll be pissing into a machine and cranking out water. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the reason why the Victorian mansion is so haunted and spooky is, A, it's out of time and place. Like, it's from fucking, you know, it's from Victorian Europe. When, like, it was kind of built in modern America. Uh, It has no, like, history in any of the places they're built. They're freakishly tall. They stick out like a sore thumb. They're always, like, decayed and abandoned. They, like, literally are dead houses. Just perfect fodder for the kids in the neighborhood to, like, freak out over and stuff like that. And, yeah, they're covered in dusty, musty furniture. Like, it's just, it's just the perfect, for lack of a better word, 
house to like just project all of your fucking terror onto. And so from that weird conglomerate of like a point in American history, all of a sudden every neighborhood had a haunted house. Every mm. place had a spooky thing. And like the Adams family were like these weird kind of forgotten relics of that era that like didn't realize their time had moved on. Like, cause the Adams family is super rich. They don't even, the joke half the time is they don't even know where their money comes from. Yeah. Like they don't work. They're idle. They have weird foreign customs. Maybe cause they're nouveau riche. They like emigrated and came to America, earned a bunch of money and like, just don't know what to do with it. Uh, you know, Gomez in the, uh, in the TV show, he was played by John Aston, and he was basically an all-American guy. But then with the movies, they made him like oddly, like indecipherably European, and like yes. all the Adams family relatives who would come would like they would dance the mamushka yeah, and the eat mamushka all this weird. I love all that stuff. So even though like it's supposed to be this weird discordant, like uh, just general spooky thing, it all has its roots in like America. The Adams family couldn't come from anywhere but America in that exact time and place. Totally. Also, Adams was Charles Adams. I was I'm going to have to say Charles instead of Adams because it'll get confusing. Charles was very political. He was a staunch Democrat. He actually based Gomez on uh, a Republican governor of New York named Thomas E. Dewey. I think he was poking a lot of fun at that guy with 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 his character. Was Dewey the man who famously beat Truman in that newspaper? Oh, shit. I don't know. I should have looked. I was just like, whatever. He's just some... I'm very not into politics. So um, <laughs> Pugsley shows up a year later in a coffin and shop class. Wednesday came shortly after trying to poison Pugsley. And Uncle Fester came last, first seeing laughing in a movie theater in which everyone else is crying. Fester is Charles Adams. Mm-hmm. Fester definitely is. Squat, fat, uh, child, bulbous very ch- nose. Very childlike. Yeah. Very, very childlike. And Charles Adams always had that going on. I'll talk about uh, the contents of his house later on when we get into the TV show. Um, Adam said uh, uh, about his characters, Gomez and Pugsley are enthusiastic. Morticia is even in disposition, muted, witty, sometimes deadly. Grandma Frump is foolishly good-natured. Wednesday is her mother's daughter, a closely-knit family, the real head being Morticia, although each of the others is a definite character, except for Grandma, who is easily led. Many of the troubles they have as a family are due to Grandma's fumbling, weak character. The house is a wreck, of course, but this... Is a house proud family just the same, and every trapdoor is in good repair. Money is no problem. Uh, now he just named a bunch of names, but at this point, actually, he did not have any names for these characters. So this is definitely after the TV show came out because he ended up naming these characters while writing the treatment for the for the TV show while and working on the pilot. In the comics, they live in a gothic house on Cemetery Ridge. This would change through different things. I think it's like Central Park and like one of the animated ones, I think. They just like live in Central Park or something. Like in the, the house moves around. In the Hanna-Barbera one, they built a the concept was the entire mansion was converted into an RV, which geometrically makes no sense, but yeah. it allowed them to travel America like the Incredible Hulk or Shazam. Uh, solving problems from town to town. Before we get into the TV show, I want to quickly note uh, Charles Adams's 
real life Morticia's, uh, his ex-wives, because they greatly resemble, resembled the character. And uh, one of his ex-wives will come into play a lot throughout this story because she is a schemy lawyer that uh, got a hold of the rights and therefore is a big part of the story when it comes to the TV show and the movies. So Charles Adams's first wife, Barbara Jean Day, resembled Morticia Adams quite a bit. Uh, if you lo- look at the pictures of his wives, you'll, you'll laugh your ass off. Be like, yep, that's Morticia. They divorced after eight years because Charles refused to adopt as he hated small children. Uh, Adams' second wife is is another Barbara. It's a double down on the Barbara name. It's Barbara Barb, who he married in 1954, and he described her saying she, and I quote, combined Morticia-like looks with diabolical legal scheming. She once attacked Charles with an African spear and forced him at one point to sign over the rights to most of his cartoons, including getting complete control of the Adams family. His third wife and final wife, Marilyn T. Miller, married him in 1980 in a pet cemetery. She wore black, as did all of the attendees. Sounds like a fucking awesome time. I really wish I could have been at that wedding, but I wasn't even born yet. And, uh, yeah, she, I think, was a lot better to him and stayed with him until his death. He only he died only eight years later, and there was a famous story about that where he died in the car, uh, in his car, and she said, well, he was always, like, Really into, I don't know the exact quote, but she was like, she was, he was really into cars, so it's a good way to go, you know? So, have uh, that sense of humor. I will say, uh, it is interesting, like, when we say the Morticia kind of look, you mean long raven hair, deep v neck, a lot of cleave, very pale, tight dress, down to a mermaid skirt. So, like, they I just, Every p- depiction of Morticia just cannot walk. Yeah. Just always, like, they barely show Angelica Houston Ever. walking. She's like. She could not turn her head. We'll yeah. talk about why. But yeah, she had a tough time filming this. And uh, in the TV show, uh, Carolyn Jones, the uh, TV Morticia, literally had to shuffle everywhere. It's like weird watching her try and get around this set. It's uh, great. But that one look, that one iconic look that was Charles Adams' weird fetish, influenced so much of heart like literally i'm going to draw the line right now draw so, that line baby in 1953 an actress by the name of mela nermi mela nermi that's that is a name that is a name <laughs> uh went to a new york masquerade ball as morticia adams in 1953 there she was scouted and she became hired to play vampira Ah. Which was the first horror host. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, which then obviously launched a million hornies, which yeah. launched Elvira and even Lily Munster, the other horror hottie, whatever goth icon, originally looked ex- more like Morticia Adams. Mm. But then when the producers found out that they were making an Adams Family reboot at the same time, had to drastically change her design because they didn't want it to be identical. By the way, weirdly enough, the Monsters ran for the exact same amount of time as The Adams and premiered on the same day The Adams Family premiered and ended on the same day The Adams Family ended. Uh, the TV series, that is, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of nuts. And it is weird. I think a lot of people confuse the two properties a lot because how odd is that that there were these two like creepy family TV shows happening at the same time? It makes sense, though, sure. because uh, the family sitcom, which had kind of uh, had kind of matured to a certain point, uh, stuff like Leave It to Beaver, My Three Sons, yeah. uh, Father Knows Best. All of these were basically started uh, at some point from the mid to late 50s. The Adams Family and the Munsters were both coming along in the mid 60s. So the formula needed a twist. 
This is also around the same time where I Dream of Genie and Bewitch starts kicking in. A little bit, they, they become a bit more magical and a bit yeah. more uh, whimsical and over the top, yeah. It had also been a pretty long time since uh, the Universal Monster movies yeah, had happened. I was about happened. to bring it up because that's what the Monsters is. The Monsters is just a comedy based off of the, the all of the Literally Universal based Monsters. from Universal Studios who yeah. had all the rights to these creatures. Yeah. So it was in the air to combine these two iconic American things the monster movie, the horror movie, and the all-American family sitcom to kind of skew the ways that the family sitcom has kind of grown long in the tooth. So it's not like this weird... It's kind of like how Ants and A Bug's Life came out at the same time. Yes. A, because of inter-studio spite. But also because everyone knew that everyone knew that the world was bug crazy. I, I, I was just... I was collecting them. I was, I was fantasizing about bugs all day. Also, I mean, also the CG technology was only so good that like a, you, they could basically do ex bug characters and yeah. have the reflections and skin maps look B- vaguely normal. Bugs or toys. Those yeah. are pretty much the only way to go. So let's talk about the TV show. It is all thanks to a guy named David Levy. He's another University of Pennsylvania grad, and he began his career in radio production. He produced a series in the early 1940s called We the People. Uh, then he served in the Navy during World War II because everybody uh, in America at that time, after which he joined an ad agency working his way up to VP of the television department. And this is throughout the 1950s. And in the 1950s, there was a much deeper connection between ad agencies and the programming that happened on actual television networks oh. in the sense like there was a lot more say by the ad and i remember this too because i was i used to watch burns and gracie you know burns and gracie yeah, yeah. george burns and his wife they had a uh say good night grace yep they had a old this is old school but i watched this there's another thing i used to watch with my dad it was black and white and you know th- this is when television they would be like in a sitcom joking around and stuff and then like gracie would just walk into the kitchen and just start pitching a commercial (laughs) like it was seamless it was not there was no commercial break it was in the show itself that's how much so of course ad agencies therefore were dictating a lot of the programming happening so it was a much easier jump to go from an ad agency head of uh you know the tv department into uh becoming vice president in charge of programming at nbc which is what happened to mr david levy so he was a major part of bringing shows like bonanza and movie of the week into the programming over there which is fundamental back then i mean and everybody watched bonanza and movie of the week is just like this standard in television i feel like back especially back at that time and he created the live-action TV series, The Addams Family. As legend has it, he was walking down Fifth Avenue in New York City with a buddy. They passed a display of Charles Adams' books, including one called Home Bodies, which showed a family portrait on the cover, which made Levy stop dead in his tracks. He turns to his friend. Of course, this is a family portrait of The Adams. He turns to his friend, and he says, there's a hit series. He immediately gets to work with Charles Adams on a treatment. Uh, now, oddly enough, uh, as I said before, characters didn't have names they sat down and gave them names um you also had barbara barb uh being the holdout on the tv show the tv show almost didn't happen because she needed more money from the producers in order to get her fill and so they did end up paying her that money levy said uh of the project we have made the family full-bodied people not monsters 
They are not grotesque and hideous manifestations. At the same time, we are protecting the images of Charles Adams' children, as he refers to them. We are living up to the spirit of his cartoons. He is more than just a cartoonist. He's a social commentator and a great wit. The series producer, Nat Perrin, greatly added to the general feel of the series. He was a close friend of Groucho Marx. And he ended up, uh, okay, so this is how he ends up getting, uh, becoming a, like a, a collaborator with Groucho Marx throughout his career, especially in the later years. He forges a letter of introduction from someone that he knew Groucho worked with. And he walks into his dressing room and hands him the, this fake letter. And that's how they became buddies. They go on to write several films, such as The Big Store, which features the Marx Brothers. And so it's this screwball humor that is being implicated into this morbid black comedy, right? And that is the formula that we were, you were just talking about when it comes to that vaudeville mixture with black comedy. They were they they started the blueprint of that here with the TV show. So the thing I noticed, watch uh, all the Adams Family episodes are available if you have Amazon Prime on the Prime Video app. And so I watched a bunch of episodes, and what got me the most is yes, there's a bunch of like torture devices around, and yes, there's like a skull, and yes, there's like uh, evil mad scientist equipment around. But the joke of the Adams Family more so than like anything truly. Uh, dark and humorous is just they're the opposite family mm. where like uh, in one episode one that's considered one of the best ones uh, called like Citizen Gomez or something Gomez gets his tax bill and he is horrified shocked indignated indignated that it's only like $80 and he's like this mansion's been in the family for years it's like a beauty like what do you mean we're only paying $80 of property tax <laughs> so he goes to the mayor who is super corrupt and knows that they're millionaires and is like glad hanging them like oh don't worry we'll take care of it for you in fact you don't have to pay any taxes at all how about a rebate and Gomez I'm just like I am insulted we gotta get this bum out of here and so he's like running for office <laughs> This is where it gets – honestly, if Again, you, though, this is the political commentary that Charles Adams uh, was led with in his cartoon – in his comics. This is insane. This is like – honestly, you guys have to watch this because it becomes a weird mirror of the rise of Trump. I'm not trying to get political here. <laughs> Literally, Gomez Adams like gets on stage and he's like, I'm going to like root out corruption unless I know the guy doing the corruption. Then, you know, whatever. Family's family. And like he's running – this like horrible campaign that's like on purpose talking about like I'm going to tear down schools and build more graveyards like because again he's the opposite guy and all of a sudden the reporters in the polls come running in being like the people love this guy he's doing a brilliant satire he's really sticking it to all those politicians <laughs> and uh the through some oh uh, he doesn't end up running because uh, Uncle Fester who was in charge of getting the signatures uh just took names off of uh tombstones Womp womp, the end. Uh, another one involves Gomez having to learn to get his uh, driver's license because he's, uh, oh God, it was like Slime Magazine's Person of the Year Award and he wanted to get his photo taken, but the guy that he felt could really capture his essence was the photographer at the DMV. <laughs> and so he demanded that his portrait be taken through him. And so he had to learn to drive. Again, it's a lot of like backwards logic and right. that more so than anything else is um, the game than like the spooky darkness. Yeah. Uh, it usually boils down to the atoms have a problem. They use backwards logic to fix it the wrong way. They then decide to put on a presentation on why they should be able to fix the problem to a straight like straight man or straight woman 
authority figure You're of some kind. You're describing every Marx Brothers movie ever. Keep yeah. Going. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Marx Brothers with more bats. Yeah. <laughs> just, just throw bats on everything. The Bat Bros. Uh, Uncle Fester fucks up. Lurch scares somebody with his weird height. <laughs> Get it? He's ho- He's tall. He's a tall man. I mean, tall people are absolutely terrifying. And then uh, the person who is supposed to be the fuddy-duddy comes around to their, like, you know what? You have a fresh angle. I will help you get your fucking thing solved. <laughs> oh my! And the cursing that happened in those TV early. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm I'm exaggerating there. Oh, it was every other second. Where the fucking at? You know, I'm fucking Gomez was actually his <laughs> his tagline. <laughs> uh, but the cast really is amazing. Um, I know. Okay, you've got uh, you mentioned Carolyn Jones. She was in House of Wax across from Vincent Price. Uh, she uh, she also also played her own sister on the show, Ophelia, which is like the hippy dippy girl counterpart, and also the Things counterpart uh, in Ladyfingers. Uh, John Aston, he plays Gomez. He had a small role in West Side Story. He had some reoccurring roles in the Dennis the Menace TV show, which I actually vaguely remember. I used to watch as a kid. Jackie Coogan, who played Uncle. Well, Fox. first of all, let us. I'm. We're not going to roll over John Aston. The man has one of the weirdest like. Most legendary uh, fucking, uh, he's the janitor in Gremlins 2. He's <laughs> in all of the uh, Killer Tomatoes movies. He is the voice of Bull Gator in Tasmania. God, he's in fucking everything. He did voices in Duckman, Bonkers. He did uh, cameos in Step by Step and The Nanny. The guy has a career that has just, he's just stayed a part of pop culture in the background. Forever. If you look at his Wikipedia page, you're going to be like, oh, fuck, he was that guy? It's insane. Dude, the craziest to me is Jackie Coogan's thing because he was the kid in in Charlie Chaplin's The Kid, which made him actually one of the first ever child stars. Oh, so it's called like Coogan's Law or something, or the Coogan Act, where they actually had to change the laws in California to protect child actors from parents like blowing their kids earnings oh did they do that to, oh, obviously they did that to him of course he was they the did first that. child actor so of course he had the first parents that fucked over a child <laughs> actor wow what a wonderful first that was. also i gotta say like there's something about jackie coogan's performance as uncle fester that uh people really loved it, it was an iconic thing for baby boomers, there's a reason why Fester's Quest was made for the Nintendo. Which, and I will say, by the way, just listen to that interview uh, with uh, Troy Baker and Nolan North that we did, because we cover it in that interview. So check that out as uh, the side piece to this episode. He has this like manic child, like Three Stooges energy. He always comes in with quote-unquote wacky inventions, and he's just like, such a kid-friendly kind of comedy, and I find him incredibly annoying and upsetting to listen to. But fucking Christopher Lloyd, man, when we get... Oh, my God. He's also upsetting, but in a better way. Oh, I love him in the... He's the best. Watching him again in the movies recently, I'm just like, what a fucking pro. That guy just gives a hundred and a million percent. It's it's, Okay, here's Coogan's fester. It was just like, ah, gee, Gomez, I accidentally pooped in the living room. Uh Uh-huh. Guess we'll have to start fertilizing the garden or whatever. It's just weird, awful baby voice. Can I give you Christopher Lloyd? Yeah. Um, um, one night I opened up his his skull and removed some of his brains. (laughs) You got to get it more guttural. Yeah, it's very low in the, in the voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
terrifying. I love his performance. It's so it's better. It's, it's better. So intense. It's better. And Christopher Lloyd was a big fan of Coogan's Fester, so he was like really excited. Oh no, it was it made its mark on an entire generation. I just it's upsetting to watch. <laughs> um, Ted Cassidy played Lurch, Kukka Crossover. He was also the narrator for the Incredible Hulk TV series, <laughs> which we definitely talked about during our Hulk episodes. And he had this deep voice. Uh, it led him to lots of different sci-fi series and uh, and things like Star Trek uh, and, of course, Hulk. Uh, he also uh, cut a minor pop hit called The Lurch which had a small dance craze in 1965, which begins the weird trend of the Adams Family having these, like, weird pop hits that kind of went along with, like, MC Hammer would do later on uh, with the first Adams Family movie. So I think this is the reason why the Adams Family did better than the Munsters in the long game. Yeah. Which is that, the theme song. That theme song, composed by Vic Mizzy. He's a Brooklyn guy that went to NYU. He was largely self-taught, and he went to write several hits in the late 30s as well as into the 40s. He got uh, into TV composing music for Shirley Temple's Storybook in 1959. He also did the music for Green Acres. Green Acres is the place right? to be. That's the only thing you remember about that show. I'm living is the life I make. Oddly enough, he later worked with Sam Raimi on Spider-Man 2 and 3. Uh, doing music <laughs> stuff. He consists mainly, uh, the song consists mainly of harpsichord with finger snaps as a percussion instrument. And it got so popular, it got its own release as a single. And it is, again, when you think of the Adams Family, I think that uh, especially the TV show, that really is the thing you think about is that is that finger snap in that theme song. So, Holden, I have to ask you, mm-hmm. um, did you, on the schoolyard when you were a kid, do a version of the Adams Family theme that was a little bit dirty. Give it to me. I don't think I don't remember this. What? No, wait. Hold I, on. I try. I think if you start doing it, I mean, I definitely remember Jingle Bell's Batman smells. This was in the exact same thing. So <laughs> this is so this is apparently one of those like Jingle Bell's Batman smells organic child to child things. Um, in England, this is how it goes. Uh, <clears throat> The Adams family started when Uncle Fester farted. He farted through the keyhole and paralyzed the cat. <laughs> what? Yeah. I don't remember this at all. Um, there's also a thing where uh, football hooligans will yell at the other team's fans. Um, your sister is your mother. Your father is your brother. You all shag one another. The Ipswich family. Oi! <laughs> or instead of Ipswich, you know, you can do uh, West Ham or just any uh, British football club you hate. Uh, the one I heard when I was a kid was uh, literally, it dropped a hard R. <laughs> it like dropped the R word in there. I could the hear word that rhymes with uh, farted. Yeah. And again, it's just, it just became part of my fucking... I don't even think the movie was out yet, but the theme song, just, it's so basic. This anyone can snap. Oh God. Also the lyrics get real weird by the end where it's like, get your witch's shawl on. It's yeah. We're going to pay a call on. (laughs) Also rhyming spooky, kooky and ooky. There you go. Fine. Okay. But that's win. where they did it. They were the first to do it. Okay, Vic Mizzy. <laughs> you get a pass. Uh, so the series runs from uh, 1964 to 1966 with 64 episodes over two seasons on ABC. It's so funny because when you think back, you're like, oh, that must have ran for like eight years. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, it was it was two years long. But 64 episodes is quite a lot. That's the, enough for syndication. That's enough for syndication. Um. And they did get a uh, a reunion 
in a made-for-TV movie called Halloween with the New Addams Family, which aired in 1977 with most of the old main cast, except for Blossom Rock, who played Grandmama. Um, also, Charles Adams was very uh, disappointed with the show because they weren't, quote, half as evil as his creations. Um, more vaudeville than goth in the goth vaudeville equation. Uh, I also have to acknowledge uh, a couple years back, some photos like became viral of the original Adams Family set, where the original yes. show was uh, filmed in black and white as well as the Mon- monsters. And so the set is actually a Technicolor playground of like pastel greens and pinks and reds. You've probably already seen it because I also remembered seeing that pop up on and different yeah. uh, like in Reddit and stuff like that. But check it out if you haven't because it is like the most vibrantly colorful set, which is hilarious because you only imagine that set being this like gloomy dark space it must have been tough to like act in that set like the way you're supposed to uh it was also heavily based on charles adams own adams's own house which was lined with working medieval crossbows it had a civil war era embalming table as a coffee table and it had a little girl's tombstone as a perch for his cocktails that read little sarah aged three uh and so he would uh, you know he was a fun dude (laughs) so before we get to the movies i just want to acknowledge another thing that made the tv show iconic which is horniness. Yeah. This was the first show in which the main characters, well, at first, I'm sure there were other shows, but <laughs> this was the most iconic horniness you could see in a show. Yeah, I mean, Gomez and Morticia, right? Yeah. And just the way that Cara they, mia. yeah, talking in French, and it made him want to kiss her arms, and <laughs> being very just, yeah, lost He basically made love to those arms. <laughs> uh, John Aston claims that even though the two were in faithful, uh, committed relationships at the time, he did feel sexual tension with her and that any time a scene was lagging or poorly written, they would just ramp up that sexual tension that they swear that he swears they both felt between each other and it would make the scene more compelling. <laughs> uh, also, before we get into the movies, uh, it should be noted that uh, animated Adam's Family stuff was going on in the 70s, even after after the show went away. To kind of keep the franchise alive a little bit, they first appeared in a Scooby-Doo movie called Scooby-Doo Meets the Addams Family. That was part of Hanna-Barbera's The New Scooby-Doo Movies, which aired in 1972, and included a few of the original cast, such as John Astin, Carolyn Jones, Jackie Coogan, and Ted Cassidy, so this is kind of neat. In 1973, there was The Addams Family, which is a new animated show that ran on NBC for two years about the family taking to the road in a Victorian-style RV. And it changed the lore a little bit. Fester was now Gomez's brother, I guess he was, was he... Um, Morticia's maybe? Morticia's maybe in the show. And Grandma Mob was now Morticia's mother. So I guess, and maybe she was Gomez's in the TV show. Uh, so let's talk about it. The very first film, it was initially pitched by Scott Rudin, an executive at 20th Century Fox. This producer has been doing stuff since the early 80s. Okay, had, so for, okay, can we... So Scott Rudin... Scott Rudin. Is... Big deal. As named in a Page Six article... The biggest asshole in Hollywood. Really? Legendary nightmare dipshit. Uh, um, by the way, real quick, his credits include The First Wives Club, The Truman Show, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, every Wes Anderson movie since The Royal Tannenbaums, and many others, including winning an Oscar for No Country for Old Men. Are you telling me that a Hollywood producer is a giant flaming fucking asshole, J- Jake? Literally, he is the most iconic. Uh, Kevin, supposedly, Kevin Spacey's uh, performance in Swimming with Sharks was based on Scott Rudin. Ah. And... He's had a legendary career. Uh, he's got his start uh, casting in uh, Broadway plays. I think he cast the original production of Annie or the movie version or something. That makes sense. Um, but he was steeped in theater. 
he uh, was an openly gay man and a successful millionaire in an era where that was not like normal or cool or like something you had to like, you know, that you could just like be okay with. And uh, he says in multiple articles and stuff that like he was a Jewish kid from Long Island that like hated his family and hated his upbringing and just wanted like to enjoy the excesses of America for what it is worth. So many of his former personal assistants and employees uh, went on to become producers of movies themselves. And supposedly the average like employment term for him is four weeks because he is, according to Hollywood legend, fired someone for getting him the wrong flavor of muffin, (laughs) uh, would like throw phones at people with such regularity that they kept backup phones in the supply closet explicitly for that purpose. He would curse people out, uh, supposedly pushed an assistant out of a moving car. Of course, love it. The most abusive weirdo. Second, or like in in competition with Harvey fucking Weinstein. (laughs) Yeah. And so, yeah, he bumped around different movie studios. He had made his way from Broadway to movies and has always stayed a part of the Broadway production community. In fact, uh, the making of the Adams Family's movies are full of, like, New York theater uh, people that he brought in. That makes sense. And have ha- both films have these musical ties mm-hmm. and dance numbers and big you, you you could see it on a stage like yes. the mamushka uh the, the, the you know the musical in in uh at the summer the thanksgiving camp. show yeah um so this is the supposed spark for the thing is uh a van was leaving a test screening at 20th century fox and inside were barry diller my former boss technically leonard goldberg tom shurek and scott rudin tom shurek's son william age 11 started snapping his fingers in the back of the car and singing the Adams Family song. Huh. And, uh, you know, creepy and the kooky. And then all of a sudden, Barry Diller chimes in and all the other producers chime uh. in. And towards the end, everybody's at the top of their lungs going like, the Adams Family. And they all gave this weird look at each other. They're like, why the fuck does even that kid know what the fucking Adams Family is? <laughs> and it basically was this one, like, the birth of the nostalgia reboot happened in that one second when they're like, Wait, I'm sure the rights to that is dirt cheap. Uh-huh. Like, but everyone remembers it. We gotta, like, this is just money. This Nostalgia is money. Every, it's one of the most powerful things in the world. This is gonna change the, like, this is before even the Batman movie came out. And it's gonna be so easy to just get this movie made. The rights have to be so cheap. There's got, there's no way that there's some crazy lawyer ex-wife that has <laughs> also has the rights, and that they also belong to uh, Orion Pictures, where where they're gonna be a big pain in the ass about the about uh, giving the rights away. It's just gonna be a piece of cake. And all the things that I just said, of course, happen. You've got the widow uh, owning crucial property rights. You've got Orion Pictures stepping in and saying, "No, fuck you. You can't make this with 20." Century Fox. It was a big issue for them to try to get this thing made, but if the widow finally sold the remaining rights to Orion. Orion put the film in production with Rudin as producer. The first draft was written by Caroline Thompson and Larry Wilson. Thompson wrote on Edward Scissorhands, Nightmare Before Christmas, and Corpse Bride. So, of course, like in other words, all of the movies that like clearly are derivative of. Uh, or Adam's Family is derivative of, and Wilson wrote uh, the story for Beetlejuice, the other movie it's uh, derivative of, and several Tales from the Crypt episodes. It was later heavily revised, however, by many, many writers, uh, but still, the, 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 the lifeblood of it definitely oozing with Burton. 
just so much Burton. In fact, they really wanted Tim Burton to direct this movie, but he ended up passing on it. And so that is how Barry Sonnenfeld gets the job. By the way, very first picture he ever directed. This is, uh, I believe Scott Rudin actually says in a Rolling Stone interview about the making of the movie back from the 90s uh, that it was his philosophy that if you can't hire big, hire low. <laughs> and Barry Sonnenfeld had not worked as a director on a major film. He was a cinematographer uh-huh. for a lot of uh, everything from Coen Brothers movies to big to a bunch of other stuff. Oh, blood, yeah. He did Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, and Miller's Crossing. He actually started out in porn. That's where he got his camera work chops. <laughs> then he moves on to director of photography for uh, the Oscar-nominated documentary In Our Water, which got the attention of the Coens. He then, uh, after working with the Coens, he moves on to Rob Reiner. He did cinematography for When Harry Met Sally and Misery. So he's learning from the fucking best, at least. He's, like, really in there with the greats uh, while they were making the greats. And... So, yeah, he said, it was the first movie I directed in a baptism of fire. The movie started at Orion, but they were going bankrupt, so they sold it to Paramount. Their chairman was then fired. Which does, like, you, it happened while they were in production. Yes. Which, like, yeah, you can exchange some rights and make some deals, but the idea of selling a movie, right, to a movie you're in the middle of making was unheard of at yes. the time. Yes, and, and, and th- this movie never should have been made. It's one of those stories. Their chairman was then fired, and the new one, he was not a comedy guy. He said he hated the film and that it was uncuttable and unreleasable. We took $24 million on the opening weekend, twice what had been predicted. He went on to, of course, direct Men in Black and get Shorty, and, like, he was so on fire in the 90s, just so on fire with his, with, with his gigs, his directing gigs. He originally wanted it to be very un clear whether Fester was actually an imposter or not uh, until the actors revolted and it was up to a 10 year old Christina Ricci to give an impassioned plea to Sonnenfeld to put uh, put it to change it so that he was not an imposter to make the actors happy and he later said that that was the right idea let's talk about these actors man what a fucking what a killer cast. cast killer cast you already mentioned Angelica Houston perfect as Morticia even when they approached her apparently they were like uh they were like we want you to play Morticia and she was like why not share and she even <laughs> said I can't believe I said that I would never say that nor like I would never say why didn't you choose a different actor for this role but I guess share was just such the obvious choice but they wanted to do the smart thing which was not put anybody in there that would be like if I saw share as Morticia I wouldn't be able to disconnect Share uh, as Cher, I would just be watching Share being Morticia, whereas Angelica Houston just becomes that role so perfectly. I mean, physically, they corset her up. They yeah. do all sorts of crazy things. Uh, what's what's the deal with like her eyes or like her they, face? I will get into that in just a little bit. But a little background on Angelica Houston. They had to like put this weird piece. Ta- they had to like tape her eyes in this weird way with all these prosthetics to give her this very specific look of very like these this just crazy look that they give her and she literally couldn't move her head uh, without breaking it and she had to remove it at lunchtime which took all these extra hours of makeup work in order to not have horrible migraines by the end of the day pretty nuts but yeah she so her first big role was in the postman always rings twice in 1981 she went on to be in several notable woody allen movies including crimes and misdemeanors which is one of my personal favorites as well as many of wes anderson's films she's just so damn good she based 
her character on a friend who is the model slash actress Jerry Hall, who appears in films such as Urban Cowboy and Burton's Batman. Uh, Angelica Houston said, with the Adams family, everything white is black and everything good is bad. But Morticia is the most lenient, understanding and wonderful mother. I've always seen Jerry as a perfect example of mother motherhood. And I have to agree. She, she, I want her to be my mom, like, like, and from watching these, but like, she's just so fucking, uh, she, I, I love the part where they you know, Wednesday's going to electrocute Pugsley <laughs> in the movie. And she's just like, what are you kids doing? He's like, we're just going to do like, can we please? And she's just like, we have to go now children. <laughs> and then she's just kind of like, okay, just a little <laughs> bit, you know what I mean? And you're just like, man, you know, you, instead of just like, everybody get down here, you gotta, we have to leave. You know what I mean? Like. Just the best. I also love the way Sonnenfeld lights her to always have that like femme fatale window blind lighting across her eyes yes. in every scene. No matter how like the physics of it cannot <laughs> exist, she's always has she always has that like eye lighting on the window blind thing. It's incredible. Sonnenfeld said, Scott and I both agree that Angelica Houston and Raul Julia as Morticia and Gomez. The studio wanted share, but we felt we would uh, that would unbalance the film. We didn't want it to be about stars. Raul was totally suited to play Gomez. I've never worked with anyone more uh, in love with life. Angelica looked very much the part for Morticia. Tall, life, thin. You never want anyone in your comedy to acknowledge you're making a comedy. You want the actors to play the reality of their characters, which is why Raul and Angelica were so good and we talked about this while we were uh during our leslie nielsen episode about how amazing he is in airplane and the same is true for the characters in adam's family they all do such a good job of just being completely invested in the moment that they're in all of angelica houston's deadpan deliveries as you know as morticia are so perfect because she's not hamming it up she's talking like this is my reality and this is the world that i live in and it's so believable and it's so much funnier that way christina ricci also does an amazing kills it like to the point where in old interviews from the making of this movie nobody can shut up about how good christina ricci is in this and it is one of it's an iconic performance uh, even next to the actor who plays Pugsley, like Jimmy Workman or something, yeah, he's in full kid actor mode. Yeah, Christina Ricci is Wednesday. Is like a forty year old woman. Yeah, <laughs> she TV. has crazy old soul energy. Sonnenfeld said, "I loved Christina Ricci and knew she had it in the bag. We found our Pugsley, Jimmy Workman, when he came to the auditions with his sister, who was trying out for Wednesday Adams. We spotted him in the waiting room. So." That's how she got it. Ricci said, when I went up to audition, my mom told me to just sort of think of Winona Ryder in Beetlejuice. They're similar characters. So again, the Tim Burton is just, a fingerprint is all over this and fucking thing. Obviously, we have to acknowledge that. I'm sure a young Tim Burton, when he was developing his cartooning style, looked at a lot of Charles Adams work yes. like, and went through a lot of Charles Adams books. It's a fucking Ouroboros, man. Just a snake eating its own snake <laughs> asshole. Absolutely. Sorry, sorry, Lex. And us in the 90s were fucking there for it. Like, yeah. loved all of this weird, dark comedy stuff going on, this gothic look and everything. By the way, going back to Raul Julia really quick, he was oh my, so good. He he mostly had done, uh, a, or he had done, rather, a lot of theater acting on Broadway and a lot of Shakespeare before breaking into movies uh, with, uh, or into such movies as Eyes of Laura Mars. Uh, Raul Julia, and I think that that speaks a lot towards how because he's just so big in such a believable way and i think that's because of all of his experience on a theatrical stage he does have that feeling of being a theatrical actor but he he nails it so well in a filmic sense and it's just he's so damn charming and i'm so sad he's no longer with us it's i'm trying to think he's like the james dean for fucking like 
old millennials. Yeah. Because he was so iconic in Adam's Family 1 and 2 and Street Fighter, and then he was gone. <laughs> yeah. And we were all like, you know, he had just kind of like hit the stage and his like genius was kind of revealed. And he loved, uh, he actually got a gig early on when he first moved to New York on Sesame Street. Ah. Like he was a children's entertainer mm-hmm. and loved, you know, that's why he took the Street Fighter role is because he wanted his to. His kids. Yeah. yeah, his kids like Street and Fighter. And apparently he or loved. Grandkids, way either way. He loved the attention that he got from the kids like who finally recognized him from the Adams Family. Mm-hmm. And it really is such a great performance. And it's, uh, you know, by the time the Adams Family, uh, by the time Adams Family Values came out, he had already been diagnosed with like stomach cancer. Yeah, yeah, he passed away very shortly. I think, or did he even? No, no, no. He passed away shortly after the movie uh, was released. But yeah, it was one of his final roles, and he was so he's so good in these movies. He's so lovable. You just can't help but love him in these films, and also you can't help but love Christopher Lloyd as Uncle Fester. He, uh, I forgot that his first role in a movie was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, <laughs> noted as, like, one of the greatest movies ever made. He got famous, however, for his role in the TV show Taxi, and then went on to be in uh, such iconic movies. Back to the Future, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Christopher Lloyd was such a big part of my childhood mm-hmm. in the movies that he was in, and he's so fucking good as Fester. I, I was, you know, I feel like I remembered, like, Ricci... Uh, I remembered uh, more, um, you know, Gomez and Morticia with Houston and Raul Julia. I forgot just how amazing Christopher Lloyd is as Fester. Like, I fr- I'm like, that's the same guy as the mad scientist. Like, he's just so, his physicality is so crazy. His Just his facial expressions are so huge and wild. And his, his vocalizations are just so... His choices are just so big and wonderful He's and almost hilarious. like spittling at the mouth. He has yeah. such crazy. Energy. You think his head's just going to explode at any moment because he's just exuding so much like tense, 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 tenseness in, also, his, in his whole hold body. On. Are you ready for uh, too much information? TMI, TMI corner. Do, 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 do. It's the TMI corner. Boop, 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 boop. Gonna tell you too much and then make you go home. You're gonna get mad and get a weird bone. It's TMI corner. I saw Adam's Family Values in the theaters with uh, my parents. I was eight years old. And uh, Christopher Lloyd's performance as Uncle Fester, I think, was the first time I understood what horniness was. <laughs> Like in, literally, in values? it was like a new emotion that he was expressing that <laughs> I f- did not quite under like. I was in, like, in family values, or in, in family values. Okay, because the first very one horny. he gets a little horny, and he's very horny in family oh, values. Oh yeah. And the conversation with Joan Cusack, who has cleavage for days on the fucking tombstone, is like, She's "I'm so a good. virgin." He's like, ah, ah, rah, rah. <laughs> and I literally had to like look at my dad. and was like, "What is a virgin?" And he, with the fucking efficiency of a ninja was like uh someone who uh, hasn't been married yet and really wants to get married <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious yeah it is oh man oh, we'll get into joan cusack in a second we're talking about the first movie for now but fucking joan cusack's so amazing in, in uh values uh malibu barbie <laughs> amazing uh so it was mostly shot the first movie at the same hollywood studio where the original tv show was filmed the cinematographer ended up quitting during the last few months of production. He was replaced by a guy who had to be rushed to the hospital at some point. So Sonnenfeld had to play both cinematographer and director for the final uh, little ch- chunk of shooting. A blood vessel in Raul Julia's eye burst, which made production have to film around that until he recovered. Uh, of course, who can forget 
the MC Hammer cut, Adam's Groove. They do what they want to do. Say do what, what they, they want to say. Do what they want to do. Play how they want to play. I am family. It is so out of place. and so like weirdly shoehorned into the movie and the two different parts that it's in there. It just feels so like completely. Because everything else is this big orchestral, <laughs> very, uh, very, it feels very, you know, it feels very exotic, you know, and everything because you know, everything you described about how the family comes off in this film. And, and then you just have this like, rap pop jam going on well the music video is insane yes. the entire cast is there i think they played it before the movie because you have to understand again this was the era That's mc right. hammer was bigger than big yeah he huge. was he was like if michael jackson and kanye combined into one uber celebrity nobody was bigger than hammer at that point and so uh, there's a behind-the-scenes documentary for the music video you can watch on YouTube, which is amazing because all these like actors and Hollywood bigwigs and all these and the special effects crew and all the choreographers are treating Hammer with like this reverence as if because nobody knew that in exactly a year and a half later nobody would care about MC Hammer yes. anymore. Yes. Yes. Uh, it was also back in the time where every big summer or whatever, I guess this came out uh, over the holidays, which I also love, but every big blockbuster, like whatever, had this ra- ra- iconic rap song so to I go along with I think this was the it. first. I think this was really what kicked it into gear. Kicked because, that off. Because, Wild Wild West. Well, Men again, in Black. Uh, oh, oh, hey, do you know what? Adam's Family, Men in Black, and Wild Wild West all have in common? Directed by Sonnenfeld. So it's the fuck, it's this whole time, it's the fucking Sonnenfeld curse that it was like, hey, you know what this movie really needs? A weirdly awkward rap that explains the plot of the movie <laughs> you just saw while the credits roll. Uh, I feel like the art form, I mean, obviously, Go Nin- uh, Vanilla Ice, Ninja yep. Rap is a yes. really great one. Iconic. Uh, I feel like one of the best ones is LL Cool J with... Uh, Deepest, bluest, bluest, my head is like a shark's fin. That's definitely the most ridiculous one, yeah, absolutely. And it, was, it came very late. I, I think that was one of the last ones for a while. I think they're bringing it back more recently. But uh, that was one of the la- that kind of put the nail in the coffin on the uh, it was that and Wild the, Wild the West the credits rap scenario. Yeah. <laughs> well, Wild, I mean, Men in Black ma- like made it even yeah. huger than uh, Prince than... Bat Prince and the Bat Rat or whatever. Oh bat group. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I guess technically that was first, but Maybe no, that was first. But Adam's Family Group. I don't know. That was still not like this, where this was like, hey, it's a whole package. You've got a hot song, music video, and movie all wrapped into one for your weird McDonald's promotion that you're going to do. <laughs> yeah, it was all it was all this franchising of 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 one property. It did win the Razzie Award that year for worst original song. <laughs> um interesting. They uh also uh the film had many issues before it was able to legally release. They had to negotiate with MGM who had the international release rights. So they ended up getting the international uh m- moolah from this movie whereas uh, Paramount would get the domestic money. Dan Le- David Levy rather also sued David Levy, creator of the TV show. Uh, that was settled out of court for oh, his property rights. I didn't realize it because, again, like I said in the interviews, nobody mentions the TV show. They all claim yeah. that they just loved the cartoons, which or the comics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the comics. That's fu- so funny. Um, so, but they even allude to the theme song. I believe maybe that's only in values. They allude to the original TV theme song in the score. Speaking of Adam's Family Values, that one comes next. We talked already about how shocked we were and how fucking good the sequel okay. was. The sequel that never should have been better, like almost it, arguably better than the first. It's a shame that even though it has since become a mainstay of uh, both home video, uh, memes, uh, Thanksgiving, oddly enough, it became Eat a big. Me. 
Eat me. Oh my god. The um the that's that thing was the choreography for that scene was directed by the guy who ended up doing the step up to the streets uh movies. Huh. Oddly enough. Again, because uh Rudin had all these uh Broadway uh connections. Yeah. Um It and- was it was written by Paul Rudnick. He did a big revision on the film's first script, and I feel like it's him who is the wall-to-wall jokes guy. Yeah. Like, I think that it's really him that is why that first movie and second movie both just have a joke a millisecond. It's really good jokes. Um, also, I'm gonna, I gotta get this out of my, hold on, I got something in my chest. I got, oh, and I gotta oh let God. it out. Guys, his chest gotta is like bubbling and being, it's like, it uh, looks it's, like, it looks like, I'm gonna bring up Gremlins again. It looks it, like the back of, uh, yeah, yeah, Gremlins I'll, back when, uh, Gremlins, when little gets, meatballs are about well, to yeah, shoot Yeah, when out. the water, get, yeah, gets on it. So, this movie has a fucking giant Jewish through line throughout the entire thing, and it's between Barry yes. Sonnenfeld, Paul Rudnick, and fucking uh, Scott uh, Scott, yeah, the biggest ass on Hollywood. All three of these guys are nightmarishly like nebbishy Jewish men, and <laughs> uh, Sonnenfeld plays uh, the you know j- uh, jo- uh, uh, the the nerdy Jewish kid, the the allergy boy, uh, plays his dad, uh, and. Like so much of the movie is just dedicated, to like oh my allergies, humor, and it's absolutely because all three of those dudes were super Jewish, and I think it's kind of weird that the Jewish director, writer, producer, insert character is the one who gets to be the boyfriend of Wednesday. I'm gonna say it, right? I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna say it. Also, there's a lot of weird political undertones going on in Adam's Family Values. Uh, Rudnick based the name off of a speech that was given by back then Vice President Dan Quayle. He blamed the L.A. riots in that speech uh, in 1992 uh, on a breakdown of family values. And if you notice, in the uh, camp scenes... Uh, if you haven't seen it before, Wednesday and Pugsley end up getting sent to a camp uh, because uh, Joan Cusack, who is fucking amazing in this movie, is this black widow serial killer, and she's trying to court Fester, and she tricks uh, the parents into sending the kids off because they get catch wise to what she's doing, and so they end up in this like squeaky clean summer camp. Camp Chippewa. And if you notice, all of the like. All of the bad guys, the quote unquote normal people, they're all like milk toast white people, blonde hair, preppy, collared shirts, whatever, rich, and every snooty people, right? And uh, all of the like people that they look down on and shit on, sure, they have like uh, arm braces or they're overweight or they're this or they're that, but they're also all minorities, <laughs> all of them. And there's, just- I mean, literally, Christine Baranski, like, is like, and uh, playing the Indians will be. Uh, Consuela, yeah, <laughs> Bertha, and I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know how to pronounce Jamal. Is it Jamal? And they do. This is like back at a time when people would still refer to Native Americans as Indians, yeah, and yeah. there is a lot of like bad Native American treatment. I feel like in this film, it's as much so, as there okay, is, okay, like, this is the most twenty. As much as there is a cool political statement in there, it's the very, most like, 2019 I could ever feel is watching this movie. Wednesday does the big reveal yeah. that they're like. You are going to steal our land. You will destroy our way of life and condemn us to poverty. Which is all, I mean, that and part And I was is... like, yeah, hell yeah, woke 90s. Like, you go, Christina. Yes, queen, I stand a legend. You know, all the bullshit. And then immediately, after this, like, great, oddly prescient moment in, in movie history, all the kids immediately just start going, woo! Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, we're still working on it. We're yeah, still. We're almost we, there. But, but it is, it is, it was. Uh, 
a pretty novel at the time to speak towards how poorly the Native, Native <laughs> Americans were treated during this time, and also to speak towards the whitewashing of Thanksgiving and all of that. And that oh, yeah, yeah. That's all there, and that's all, I think, attributed, again, to this family values, Dan Quayle thing, and, and it's all incorporated in there. I had no idea about any of that stuff back when I watched the movie. I just thought it was fun and these cra- these crazy kids, you know what I mean? And, and uh, uh, yeah, it was very fascinating to watch having that a little bit more of a, a mindset of what the background of all these things. Try, I, my head is full of Adam's Family Values trivia, and I know we're running low on time, and I'm trying to, like, triage no, the good we shit. Got, we got time. I mean, do you want to talk about Michael Jackson? I think that's probably what you want to talk about right I mean, now. Well, to talk about Michael Jackson, <laughs> we're going to have to talk about something else. Um, uh, so when the credits roll on this, on this movie, uh, you know, everyone lives happily ever after. Debbie, the Black Widow killer, gets vaporized into a pile of dust. Spoilers. Yeah, whatever. Malibu Barbie, one of the greatest villain monologues in movie she history. She kills this movie. <laughs> I love Joan Cusack. She's so good as her role. And uh, across from Fester to Christopher Lloyd and Joan Cusack, I could watch them in scenes it's together all day. You'll be back soon, right? <laughs> uh huh. And packs up two giant packs of hawks. I mean, what is it? Is it? A, is it? A, so, I forget what he guesses the first couple times. He's just like. Is it a bomb? <laughs> what? <laughs> Excitedly. <laughs> She's so exasperated. That's so funny. Uh, once again, TMI sexual trauma. Watching his performance as Uncle Fester when he finally has sex for the first time and he just starts leaning back. Yeah. Terrifying. Oh, like, Terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so how do you improve on the Adams Family groove? How? By MC Hammer. By MC Hammer. Uh, well, in Adams Family Values, the credits roll and what plays is Possibly, literally the worst song I've ever heard in my entire fucking life. Uh, Mary, precious Mary, uh, audio producer, goddess of all content, please play a couple of bars of the ending, the credits song from Adam's Family Values, Tag Teams, Whoop, The Adam's Family, there it is. Kick it. Oh yeah, party time with the Adam's Family. This is the worst. If you ask me to write a parody of bad 90s rap, like end of credits rap songs, I could not do better than this. This is already beyond satire. Whoop, there it is. And also Whoop, there it is. I think there were like three different versions of it already. It was like this weird obsession. Oh, it was my favorite song back in the day. With the hook, Whoop, there There it is. Uh, Miami drum and bass performers tag team made this like infectious beat. And uh, Whoop, there it is. Uh, breakout one hit wonder single and they made this music video uh with like bad backup dancers and like christina ricci and uh pugsley kid are there too and it's just and they're literally like it's like and fenster and fester is there and he's gonna get laid but it turns out that the lady was evil adam's family whoop there it adams <laughs> it's bad it's really bad and i was shocked i was like what the fuck is this song how can it be this bad how can it be this near near unlistenable, cheesy, and lazy and awful? And the answer was, that wasn't supposed to be the Adams Family end credits song. No. Originally, it was going to be Michael fucking Jackson, who had already recorded the song and produced a multi-million dollar music video along the same um, kind of thing as like Captain EO 
or Moonwalker. It was a, you can see the shot footage with a ton of scenes missing on YouTube. And the song was called, Is It Scary? It had CGI effects. It had cameos from uh, Thing and like all these expensive special effects. It was once again, the kind of thing where like Michael Jackson was trying to save kids, but like nobody understood him. And uh, then all the white children cry around him, be like, Michael, please come back. And he like uses the magic of music to like, it's the, you've seen them all. You know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. right? Like that self-serving Michael Jackson yeah. uh, epic music video thing. And then into production. Uh, oh, wouldn't you know it? A dentist just casually reveals that uh, his son was molested by Michael Jackson and caused a giant uproar, giant thing. In the movie itself, they make a joke where uh, the Jewish kid walks into the quote-unquote happy hut or whatever, and he screams as if he sees something scary, and it turns out it's a poster of Michael Jackson. (laughs) Because for a weird moment in the early 90s, you could acknowledge that Michael Jackson was a fucking creep and nightmare person. And then because the lawsuit got settled, it all went away, and only now are we back on board with it. It it makes the, the movie feel weirdly present. Rudnick said, I think he completed the video for it, but it was just a little too risky to include it in the final movie at that point. I think it involved him living in the Adams family mansion and all of his neighbors storming the place with pitchforks and torches. So it was a little too close. That's why it wasn't included. You can't he did end up releasing the song later as like a remix mm-hmm. on like in the late nineties. And it's a jam. It's a great song. Like it fucking that's the Michael Jackson uh, paradox is uh, g- great songs. Great songs. Great songs. Uh, so Adam Stanley Values, fucking phenomenal. Uh, go check it out. Go watch both. I loved the first one, too. I think they're both great films. Really fun. And I was laughing out loud. Like, I was shocked at how much I, I still enjoy those movies. Um, so you've got the mu- uh, the musical. Uh, very briefly, we'll talk about the music and lyrics were done by Andrew Lippa. And the book was done by Marshall Brickman, who co-wrote Annie Hall. Uh, it uh, had a tryout in Chicago in 2009 and then opened in Broadway in 2010 with Nathan Lane, who actually appears in Adam's Family Values as the <laughs> cop and does a great job. Fuck him! Cuck him! As Gomez and B.B. Newworth as Morticia. I would have liked to see it. It, oh, it seemed like it was a good time. It closed in September of 2011. There's a couple of great songs in it. They age up Wednesday to um, make it so that like she's starting to date mm. and like uh, Morticia and Gomez kind of like come to terms with their children like growing older and there's actually there's some it's 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 oddly effective even though it is the classic like late stage broadway uh you know uh licensed tie-in yeah 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 totally um we we mentioned the pinball machine manufactured by midway designed by pat lawler and larry damar Go check it out if you have never played it before. It's First of considered all, it's one not, of the best ever it pinball machines. It is the best-selling pinball machine of, of all, all time. time. And what it did right is it had uh, – it kind of came – it was the apex of modern pinball design. And after that era, pinball kind of lost its way a little bit. Uh, so what it has is that orange dot matrix display with all those cool animations. It has voice clips from the uh, movies. So it was like talking. It was like visually pleasing. It had the uh, the thing hand that would come in and grab the ball with a magnet and like place it somewhere else. And just like the the art of pinball design where the ramps and the flippers and the bumpers were all placed perfectly well. So even a beginner could like kind of get into the swing of things and you could get good combos going. It was just a 
from a gameplay perspective, a great pinball table. Yeah. And after that, the you know, the 90s were cruel to pinball makers. They started incorporating like more video screens and holograms and effects and like crazier motorized gimmicks that would break down all the time. And then arcade owners wouldn't want to repair them. So it was just this ideal, perfect middle ground of like the entire history of pinball design. What I remember the most, though, was the Adams Family Generator. Tell me if you this is like a weird, like almost apocryphal machine. It would have these two metal handles Hmm. and a basically life-sized fiberglass Christopher Lloyd holding a light bulb in his mouth. Uh And you would put money in the machine and grab onto the handles. And supposedly it would deliver electric shocks at higher and higher voltages up until like a million volts. At which point, if you could survive and like keep holding on, Fester's ears would start smoking and you would get a little printed receipt to show that you could withstand that many volts. I was terrified of this thing as a kid. It was in my local arcade. It would make all these terrifying, you know, it would it would play spooky music and it would just ramp up like na 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 na. It would just start screaming at you, and I was so scared of this thing, especially because um, if you've ever like stuck your finger in a light socket or if you had like a you know one of those trick pens that would shock you, like getting electrocuted isn't fun. I was like fascinated by this weird pain machine. Doing research for this episode and actually like reaching out on social media, it never electrocuted you. Yeah, I was I was gonna say it just no had it some like high powered vibrators. Basically, yeah, yeah. two uh, someone on someone on Twitter just called them two over overclocked Hitachi's. Yeah, that would just shake your hands. Right, and so if you were expecting an electric shock and started getting shaky, you would like release out right, of fear. Right. But once you understood what was happening, you could just hold on yeah, and nothing yeah. would happen to you. That's funny. And that's like, I don't know. That's just a weird piece of nostalgia <laughs> juice that haunted me this entire time. Well, now we'll talk about the present. If you're hearing this recording the day it came out, then you have to know that tomorrow, literally tomorrow, uh, October 11th, 2019, is when the new movie is set to release. The family moves to New Jersey, and they have a different difficult time, especially with a greedy, arrogant reality TV host, Margot Needler, played by Allison Jenny, as they prepare for their extended family to arrive for a special celebration. Uh, this is uh, animate what this is computer animated, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it is an one hell of a cast yet again. You've got Oscar Isaac as Gomez, Charlize Theron as Morticia, Chloe Grace Moretz as uh, Wednesday, Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things as Pugsley, Nick Kroll as Uncle Fester, Snoop Dogg as Cousin It, Bette Midler as Grandmama. It is, like, really unbelievable. Uh, Martin Short and Catherine O'Hara play Morticia's mother and father. Just an incredible cast. I'm definitely excited about it. It was originally, again, supposed to be a stop-motion film by Tim Burton at Universal, (laughs) but it moved to MGM and became animated and based on the comics by Pamela Petler, who co-wrote the screenplay with Matt Lieberman. Check it out. I'm sure I will. I think that's it, ladies and gentlemen. Our episode on The Addams Family, the epic franchise, is a part of our Spooky October series uh, yeah, that was a hell of a ride. And thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. If you'd like to follow us uh, or support us further, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We've got for just $5 a month. Uh, we, wait, we're only charging a, $5 for this? For uh, content, for weekly bonus content, different discussions and things, different uh, monthly roundups where we talk about all the video games we've been playing and the movies we've been watching and the the comics we've been reading and stuff hey, like that. Hey, do you want to know what we think about the Joker movie? <laughs> 
pony up, dog, because that's where yeah. it's going to be. It's probably going to get some thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, just uh, check it out. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Also, you can follow me on twitch.tv forward slash holdinators ho Hey, hey. That's my jingle. Uh, <laughs> note for note. Follow me on Twitter at bestjakeyoung. And hey, uh, if you're listening to us right now on a telephone, uh, use that phone to leave a review on the Apple Podcasts app. Uh, five stars helps us out greatly, gets our numbers bumped up, and, uh, you know, makes me feel good when I'm sad. And remember, you dogs, never stop bruising. And always be whizzing. Sorry, I called you dogs. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.